0: You're listening to a very special edition of The Interchange Recharged. I'm your host, David Miller, and I'm finally back home after two days of being engrossed in meaningful and insightful conversation with key players in the energy transition. Listen in as I recap my time at Wood Mackenzie's Grid Edge Innovation Summit in Phoenix, Arizona, where I had the pleasure of sitting down with the experts and representatives leading the charge in grid data, energy efficiency, and innovative EV charging solutions. The last day of the summit really started off strong with a presentation that shared research on utilities modernization plans, initiatives, level investments, deployed technologies, and cost recovery mechanisms. Something that really stood out to me, not only during that panel, but throughout the entire conference, was the importance of gathering data from the grid and analyzing it in order to come up with sustainable solutions. This is becoming more crucial as we move toward a more bi-directional grid with the rise of EVs. I'm fortunate to have Fahima Kazampour, Head of Grid Monetization at Wood Mackenzie with me right now. Fahima, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me here.
0: So you had a really interesting presentation earlier on the utilities investment and grid monetization. What were some of the key themes that you talked about?
1: Sure. So I was really happy to use this Grid Edge Innovation Summit to reveal the first phase of the research that I've been conducting for the past couple of months. So for the first phase, we have reviewed 19 investor-owned utilities, They regulated filings. For grid modernization, either through their general rate case or through their grid modernization specific plans. What our research found is that those 19 IOUs filed for $18 billion of investment in grid modernization. That investment is happening across all 10 grid modernization categories that we have identified from traditional elements of AMI, infrastructure hardening, distribution automation, all the way to new and emerging areas of DER deployment, DER management. And data analytics.
0: I think you had on there AMI was the, the biggest piece of that $18 billion.
1: That's correct. Sitting at $8.8 8 billion.
0: Overall, though, uh, one of the points that you made, which I thought was also really interesting, was of that $18 billion, it, it still represents a very small percentage of the utilities rate base, kind of with the exception of PG&E in California, which was actually a large piece. What have been the consumers' reaction to kind of the grid monetization and these other initiatives being part of the rate base?
1: Absolutely. So the thing is that grid modernization usually goes through the rate cases because like utilities, they need to make sure that they're serving the load. They're meeting load growth. That's like their usual business as usual thing that they need to do. And then there's investment needed to modernize their grid through like across like all the categories that I just named. You're right. Like one of the things when I saw the data, like we started gathering the data, extracting data, the data showed that, wow, the level of investment is at $18 billion across 19 IOUs only. So this was a huge number when actually I found that number. But I said that, wait a minute, how much of it, actually, when we compare it to the overall rate of utility, what is the share of grid modernization? Because we kind of now know that most of actually investments goes to... Kind of keeping the operation of utility as is, like meeting the existing load that they have or meeting the load growth that's happening. When I actually like started gathering data on that and comparing and actually calculating that fraction, I said that, oh God, most of them is sitting at 4%. But that was mainly around 2020, 2021 rate cases. But then, then I started actually like getting access to the 2023 general rate cases that came up maybe they were filed maybe a month ago, two months ago. They're that fresh out of the oven. So when I started looking at the share of grid modernization expenditure in the overall rate base, that I saw an upward trend. For example, to your point, PJNE in its 2020 general rate case, the share was only four percent. But then in 2023, general rate case, the share has increased to 24%. That's like six times more. And I saw similar like trends. For PG&E, it makes absolute sense because of like all the wildfire issues that's happening around them. They need to actually invest more in their grid and the aging infrastructure that they have. But also... As I mentioned, this was the first phase of my research. The second phase is including more and more of IOUs. So I'm right now. I'm looking at some utilities in Florida. I'm looking at some utilities in Texas. And those areas that we know that they're struggling with their distribution grid to operate it, just to make sure that they can maintain reliability, safety, and affordability. Those are the areas that we will see more shared, like a higher share of grid modernization investment.
0: It will be interesting to see those other areas and, and what your research shows. But that $18 billion from from the areas that you looked at, that was just really to bring the grids up to kind of current status. That's not even the, the future.
1: To some extent. So as I mentioned, like there are three emerging areas, DER deployment, DER management, and data analytics. I think that's really the future that utilities are going towards. And we see good amount of investment happening in those three areas as well.
0: It's a tremendous amount of money to help just bring it up to, but you're right about PG&E, they've had the issues with the grid, with the wildfires, and and we've obviously had the issues in Texas uh, Absolutely. as well. What are there some of the key trends that you're also seeing elsewhere on the grid modernization?
1: So that's, I think that one of the key data points that we extracted from those regulatory filings, what the a stage that a project is in, like basically for each line of investment, for each initiative. We wanted to see if it's at a full deployment, meaning that it's a commercially proven technology, or is it like in a demonstration pilot phase, or is that as a study phase? So what's interesting is that across all the grid modernization categories, even the well-established one. For example, when you talk about infrastructure hardening or distribution automation, you think that, oh, it's well-established. That has been around for many years now. But we noticed that even in those areas, innovation is happening and like demonstrations are happening, new pieces of technologies are coming up or new applications and use cases being developed. So that's really interesting. But I think one area that I personally, perhaps I might be biased because this is the area that I'm passionate about, is the application of data analytics. Utilities filed for AMI many years ago. It goes back perhaps to 10 years ago or even for some utilities, even more than that. And... They were getting access to this amount of data, level of data coming in, but there was not really so many use cases, basically, how to use that data until they started actually, like, working on data analytics. With that data analytics, it's just like you can go, us engineers, I'm a power system engineer, so we have an 80-20 rule. Basically, you invest and you get to 80% result, but for you to get to that 100% result, there's so much more that you need to invest. But with data analytics, what we are noticing is that it, it is accelerating to get to hundred percent benefits that you could get, for example, for AMR investment. Or how much application, how much it can help you save on operation and maintenance expenditure. Because now, if you access data that's coming from your assets, you can do predictive maintenance, preventive maintenance. So this is an area that I feel that is emerging from so many utilities. Utilities are taking time to actually like understand where they are in their journey with data analytics, what they have. They're in very early stages, but this is going to be perhaps the last piece of puzzle that could put everything on a position that we can say that, okay, we are operating a coordinated, optimal grid.
0: Data accuracy and analysis is key to business decision-making, as well as just operating efficiency. And it's good to hear that that's becoming a much more prolific discussion across the board.
1: Absolutely. Even the simple business intelligence, that data-driven decision-making. I'm coming from a utility background. So I know very well that that was not happening before that. You would make a decision without actually going back and looking at your data. Yeah, you may rely on your control room operators or your asset management like uh, managers or like field crew to tell you that we have a feeling that we should do this because last year we did that and it worked better. We had that data, all we needed to do is to actually like do a data-driven business decision making. And now we can see that more and more utilities are actually have started doing that, which is amazing because like it increases the efficiency of the operation of a grid. It's not just the grid operation, but also it's like utility as a whole, the operation that the utility has.
0: Listen, thanks for stopping by. Appreciate it and hope you enjoy the rest of the conference.
1: Pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: (laughs) Okay, I'm joined by Gary Ayer, Vice President of Business Development at Sentient Energy. Gary, welcome. Hi, David. So you were just part of a a panel discussion on grid edge data. How did that go? What are your key
2: takeaways? I thought it was a great presentation. It was great to hear Brendan from Southern California Edison talk about all the new kinds of data they're going to have to look at to have a better understanding of what is going on on the grid in terms of the renewables, proliferation, and the EV revolution that's taking place. So that for me to see their extent and breadth and depth of the kind of data they want to acquire was fascinating. And secondly, you know, the, my colleague on the panel was talking about the evolution of the end meter, how it's wanting to do more than just a bill for electricity. Now it's also beginning to connect with a char- EV charger or a charging electric vehicle. That is also an evolution that was interesting to see. And how are you seeing the trends follow that in the industry as a whole? The industry has to now get ready for the fact that we are becoming very computation intensive, and communications network intensive in terms of the amount of data we need to analyze. And then the the challenge in front of us is now to basically take many of the existing analytics that are available and start utilizing it in a very big way. That's the first part. There are a lot of analytics available that need to be deployed, David, but the other part of it is also there's new analytical applications and algorithms that need to be developed so we can finally get control of all the variability and dynamics we're going to start seeing in this grid.
0: Yeah, I mean, data consumption is continuing to follow a technology path. And how are you seeing the technology development as it relates to the energy transition helping to, I guess, enhance that data analysis and consumption?
2: Great question. So first and foremost, you know, a few years ago, if somebody had said the grid was going to go bi-directional, we would have said not so. Today, nobody's disputing that. I think vehicle-to-grid or microgrid serving energy into the grid is here and now. So without this new kind of analytics, we're simply not going to be able to harvest the best out of these investments, right? So that's the first piece is the decidedly more complex grid is going to rely far more on data. And data by itself, as you know, does nothing. For me, it's all about what is the relevant context in which the data is going to now provide you the actionable insight. That is the most important piece that people want to do And then the impact of that actionable insight is the hardest piece for us to secure the behavioral change. You know, I I look at four things, you know, either they want us to do some more of something which we are doing, which is good, or less of something which we're doing, or start doing something for the first time, which is the change management part, right, which is fundamentally redesign a process, or stop doing something that's going to be detrimental. So I see those four outcomes happening, all driven through the consumption of a vast amount of data on the network.
0: It is interesting to see that evolution because, I mean, number one, obviously, is data quality, right? Yeah. Got to have the data quality. But then the next step is the technology surrounding it and how you deploy it, how you analyze it, and everything else that comes along with it to really make those
2: uh, correct and efficient decisions. The data quality is a big point you mentioned, right? That's, that's a very big one. And thank you for bringing that up. Data doesn't come free. You have to acquire new kinds of data. You have to invest in collecting the kind of data and then... To make sure the data is of the right fidelity and qualities is of paramount importance, right? So that is a critical part of assumption that we have to make. That only the highest quality data is probably going to be the most useful to give you the actionable analytics that you need. So it's a great point you make.
0: So how are you enjoying the summit so far? I mean, we're just uh, you know halfway through day one, uh,
2: but what you, what are you your key takeaways? Or what are you most interested in? My first key takeaway is already half a day into it, the quality of the presentations and the panels. I've been absolutely delighted and thrilled to first see the a preparation that Woodmac has put into this. That's fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to the next couple of days here to make some new connections and learn from so many of the innovators that are here with their solutions and also some very interesting ideas being tried out by our customers. So for me, this is a great learning and exchange and, you know, getting to meet new players in the industry opportunity. Looking forward to it.
0: Well, good. Well, listen, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Interesting discussion. I wish you best uh, for the rest of the summit. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Thank you. It became really clear throughout the conference that the accuracy of the data and the quality of the analysis behind it was really critical in making these decisions in a way that would create the most efficiency in grid operations. Something that really surprised me the past few days was the number of key players in attendance at the conference. You heard us talk to two representatives from the U.S. Department of Energy who really highlighted their eagerness to learn more about the innovative technologies in the clean tech sector. Representatives from Google and RMI were also in attendance and participated in panels that discussed regulatory reforms like the IRA, incentives, where improvements still need to be made, and what partnerships need to be formed. I am joined by Vince Faraday, Head of Energy Marketplace and Implementation Partnerships at Google. Vince, welcome.
3: Thanks, David. Great to be here.
0: So you're actually going to be on a panel discussing the regulatory reforms that would unleash DER flexibility capacity. Give us a little preview of what are kind of the key points you're going to have tomorrow.
3: Yeah, well, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for the opportunity uh, and, and thrilled to be chatting with you and, and your listeners. So I'm with Google. I'm with uh, specifically with Nest. And so our our Nest partnerships team, uh, think of Nest as the smart thermostats we know and love. I've been with the company about five years. My group focuses on partnerships with utilities, grid operators, uh, and implementation partners like energy marketplaces and others. And what we're trying to do at the end of the day is to help accelerate the deployment of Nest thermostats with utilities and their customers in demand side management programs. So that's energy efficiency, demand response, and a a Nest thermostat is really this beautiful combination of of value across those two pillars of DSM. So on the energy efficiency side, a Nest thermostat's going to help customers save between 10 and 15% uh, of their heating and cooling which puts dollars back in their pocket. And then it's also a, essentially a gateway device to enroll in uh, demand response programs. And that can be a utility DR program. It could be a wholesale market program. It could be a time of use rate. It's an enabling device for that as well. And particularly in a year like this, with rising energy costs, it's more important than ever to help folks connect to energy savings technologies like this that can literally, uh, as I said, put money back in people's pockets and, and make a big difference, not just for, for pocketbooks, but also for, for the grid, for the environment, all that good stuff.
0: You know, I've got a Nest it in my house and I actually got it for ease, right? It was something I sure. could use from my my iPhone, but there's actually a lot of energy savings associated with it. So how are you kind of driving that adoption forward? Because I'm sure a lot of people maybe initially got it for the ease of use, Yep. but there really is an energy transition component to it. So how are you either kind of driving that forward, but also improving the energy efficiency with the Nest?
3: You're right. People buy it for a lot of reasons. Many people buy it for aesthetics. They like how it looks in their homes. I certainly do uh, in mine, and it certainly um, is, is a beautifully designed product, and it's beloved. People people love it. We're thrilled and honored to be the market leader when it comes to smart thermostats, and really are really kind of synonymous with the category at this point. We are driving, and particularly my team and our partners are driving a ton of engagement with utilities to basically put their existing DSM program dollars to work to help make the Nest an even more affordable and enticing solution for customers. What I mean by that is the Energy Marketplace Partnerships piece of of what our work is. We're working with utilities and their, their implementers to basically stand up e-commerce sites that can connect directly to customers, to to a utility customer, and to take an instant rebate and take dollars off that product right at the point of sale. And it's, it's really revolutionized how products have come to market and how we've connected it to customers. For a long time, you could go into a Best Buy or Home Depot and you could buy an Nest Thermostat. You still can, but we're seeing a ton of growth when it comes to these utility branded online marketplaces that have program dollars built in and can really connect to customers in new ways. In that online experience, it also is a, a wonderful way for folks to be able to sign up and enroll in demand response programs right at that point of purchase and stack those incentives, stack that value right up front. One of the ways we're doing that is to take the dollars off the product and in many places in the country right now you can get a very low cost or even a free nest thermostat with these utility incentives that are kind of built into the online experience that's how we're helping to get it out to more customers in terms of additional savings that you asked about in addition to the on device energy efficiency savings that i mentioned between 10 and 15% savings on heating and cooling we also have additional boosts we call it seasonal savings is an additional boost that can get sent to nest thermostats it's basically a way going into the heating and cooling seasons where the thermostat will ask if you want to squeeze some additional savings out of your device optimizing giving you a new schedule going into a heating or cooling season and that saves an additional 3 to 7% on people's uh, heating and cooling going into those seasons just this year we launched a new service called nest renew which is an additional service with our thermostats that can essentially help our customers raise a hand to say they want their thermostat to be optimized to help fight climate change and what that means is it's a way for additional savings and additional boosts to come through to customers it's also a way for us to connect them to more grid service programs more demand response programs whether they be from the utility or additional programs to help with emissions or with the grid so a ton of um of new and exciting developments that we're trying to bring to customers through the thermostat.
0: I would imagine that the response from the utilities and the partnerships that you're working in has been very positive in terms of adoption at the consumer level because it looks like there's a couple different stages, right? You got the first stage, either aesthetics, like you mentioned, or mm-hmm. just it's easy, but then it's, it becomes even more affordable. But then also that green initiative you mentioned, uh, Nest Renew, and just being able to help the environment more easily. And I mean, so there's just a lot of different factors that can help drive that growth. So I imagine that the utility partnership aspect has been very positively received.
3: Absolutely. And I think we're still very early in the smart thermostat story. For those of us who've had thermostats for a while, it might seem like everybody has one now, but there's been some recent studies, one by the EPA, one by Standard & Poor's. Between 16 and 17% of U.S. households have a smart thermostat. Just 16 to 17%, which shows, you know, less than one out of five households have a smart thermostat, we have a ton of room to grow and there's a ton of value that we can bring to customers. And we're thrilled to work with utilities to help do that. I really, really do think that it's a, it's a tremendous growth channel for our business and for the industry and for utilities as well. It's a great story for them to connect to customers and particularly again, in a year like this year, where there are rising costs across the energy industry and for a number of reasons, we now have a device that can help directly address those rising costs by helping customers reduce that. So the putting the utility at the center of that discussion. As a trusted energy advisor that can help their customers uh, reduce their bills we found to be really successful and there's a ton of utilities around the country who are leading in with us um, and helping to grow their programs
0: yeah i mean everybody's looking to reduce the cost somehow not only in a high energy price environment but just an overall inflationary environment Mm as well what are some of the big obstacles that you're seeing out there
3: first is awareness these energy marketplaces that i mentioned i bet most folks don't know that they have them that they're even a possibility very few people wake up in the morning and think to go to their utility to buy a smart thermostat but lo and behold the best deal in the market on any day of the week is probably with your local utility company and so i would encourage any listeners to search and see if there is a marketplace for them with their utility company, if there's not, ask them for one because there's. it's a really a tremendous opportunity for us to bring together utility programs that we've had for many, many years and e-commerce. And we certainly know everything is happening with e-commerce these days. So the biggest obstacle is awareness to how we can get more folks connected both to these programs, but also to these devices. And then it's about how do we accelerate as many folks to get into these, these programs as possible. Um, again, ton of headroom to grow.
0: Well, listen, Vince, appreciate you taking the time to to stop by and talk with us today.
3: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: We all know the importance that utility companies, government agencies, and big names like Google play in the energy transition. The rise in EVs was a major topic of discussion during the conference, not only the rise in popularity, but the role they play in the modernization of the grid. There was a great panel discussion that dove deep into EV charging infrastructure, partnerships between utilities and smart charging solutions, and the importance of overall consumer education. with Tia Gordon, co-founder and COO at It's Electric. Hi, Tia.
4: Hi, nice to meet you.
0: How are you enjoying the uh, summit so far?
4: It's fantastic. I, uh, I'm thinking I haven't had a chance to contact my uh, my co-founder, but this is sort of like the brainiest event of all of them that I have been to. So I'm really excited to be here. There's a lot of really great thinking and great conversations that are happening.
0: Yeah, I agree. You were just on a really interesting panel on EV charging infrastructure ownership. Tell us a little bit about how that discussion went. What were your key takeaways?
4: I had the pleasure of paneling with Carter Lee from Switch and Crystal from Florida Power and Light. And that was overseen by Nick from Wood We were all coming in from the perspective of who should own EV chargers, meaning is it private? Is it utility? Is it government? What is the solution? And it was originally positioned as a debate, interestingly enough, when I was first reached out. But then when we had our pregame call uh, with Crystal Carter and I, we all were in such unanimous agreement that it should be everyone that owns and operates EV charters that we changed it from being a debate to being more of a conversation. So that's the position that I come from, is that, you know, where there's not opportunity or there's limitations for local government, municipality, or utility owning EV charters and being able to them... The restrictions that are placed on them, preventing them from deploying EV chargers as quickly as we need to get them out, that's where public-private partnerships and private solutions can come in, such as It's Electric.
0: Yeah, so It's Electric sounds like it's doing a lot of cool things. Do you want to give us a little bit of an overview of your, of your business?
4: It's Electric was founded by two Brooklynites um, who were frustrated with the limitations around the options that they had to be able to convert to electric while living in a city. If you live in the suburbs, it's very easy to charge an electric vehicle. You basically have an electrician come over. They put a 240-volt outlet in your garage. You come home at the end of your day. You plug in. You charge. You wake up to a full battery. If you live in the city, it's a lot harder. Cities like New York, for example, the DOT is working really hard. There's an incredible group there that's extending full effort to make sure they can meet their goal of having 10,000 curbside chargers deployed by 2030. Currently, they have 100. Los Angeles, for comparison, has 4,000 public chargers. 400 of those are curbside. The reason that LA can go faster than a city like New York is because their accessory feed, the power that feeds their stoplights and their lampposts, is 240 volt. And that's the right level for a level two charger. Other cities, such as my hometown of New York City, is 120. So that's the same as your outlet at home for your hairdryer. That's that infrastructure barrier that we've heard talked about across different panels today. And so we started It's Electric to find a workaround solution for that infrastructure. My background is not in energy, it's actually in design and technology. So I came to this with a, a design thinking proposition. I said, how can we solve this problem using the materials and the elements that we already have at our fingertips? And that's how It's Electric was born because we installed chargers And instead of relying on that inner utility connection in the street, the one that takes a long time in terms of permitting, in terms of construction, we avoid all of that because we siphon power off of an adjacent building. And then we turn that charger into a public curbside charger. And why would a building allow us to do that? It's because we revenue share back to them. So they're earning passive income every month just by hosting a small eight inch by eight inch totem on their curbside.
0: And how is that approval process to get that put in place?
4: It's going to be different in every city that you go to. In cities like New York, there's a process called revocable consent. In other cities, it's called a revocable permits, which basically means like the c- sidewalks are a gray area. Um, if someone trips and falls on your sidewalk in New York, you're liable. But you can't, for example, install a bench or a water feature or anything else that you might want to put on your own personal sidewalk. But there are certain pre-permitted elements that you can install. So I can call in New York City 311 and I can ask for a tree pit or I can ask for a bike rack. And those are previously approved through the Department of Transportation. And then they'll put me in touch with the proper channels to have these installs. It's our goal to have electric vehicle charger added to that list of pre-approved elements that can be installed on curbside in New York City. And since we do this at no cost to the homeowner and at no cost to the city, we feel like we're a win-win proposition, not only for cities and for property owners, but for drivers and most importantly aspiring drivers people who want to go ev there's too many stories i've heard of people who in cities have gotten evs and have had to sell them because the charging has been too difficult or challenging and that's the opposite direction we need to be moving in unilaterally as a country
0: it helps move the initiative forward how has the reception been from the property and homeowners?
4: It's been great. We have an unofficial waitlist. We have to make it official at some point. Um, and we get organically, you know, about a dozen signups a week. Um, we have uh, over 300 people signed up so far and that's just again just from having this through word of mouth if on its electric.us uh, it's a option to go get involved and you'll see that there's a waitlist there. And what we're using this for is to be able to heat map where the greatest level of interest is for when we start to deploy on-street pilots. Right now, uh, we're actually in the process of building our first round of pilots, but they're all going to be on private property until we get our UL certifications in place. Um, So we're going to be piloting across three cities, across New York, D.C., and Detroit, because those are the areas that we're really focused on that, again, have that that core requirement of that dense on-street parking, and also I have cities that are really interesting in, in helping uh, helping you know transportation be one of the leading causes in lowering carbonization.
0: You know, it is lost sometimes as we push forward. We we, we lose sight of some of the complexities around this, such as the EV charging in those densely populated areas. What are some of the challenges that you see going forward to to kind of deploy, particularly in those cities, but even beyond?
4: For us. There's so many great solutions that are already out there for areas that have plenty of private parking garage structures or private parking lots. Um, So, you know, people often ask us, can we be installed in a parking garage or a parking lot? And the answer is, yes, we can. But there's other tools out there that are better suited for, for those installations. For us, the biggest thing we want people to wrap their heads around is that in the not-too-distant future, there will be dedicated EV charging spaces on city streets. And these will not be very high in their ratio. There'll still be tons of parking available for internal combustion engines while that ratio remains higher for the ICE vehicles over the EVs. But that's sort of sort of like this, this idea that people get really hung up on. They get very upset. They say, oh, well, where am I going to park? Why is this EV taking away my parking spot? But it's really not. If you look at, you know... New York City, again, and other U.S. cities are saying, even when we're at mass adoption, the recommendation that they're following is one charger for every 10 electric vehicles on the road. So that shakes out on a long city block to about four or five charging spots per block. It's not too much of a sacrifice, especially if you look at following COVID, when we had outdoor dining structures erected, and a lot of those are still there. We did that for the benefit of the community. We did that to keep our restaurants afloat. We did that to keep, you know, a sense of an economy going strong. And again, you know, 18 months later, we still have these outdoor dining structures and no one's very upset that we've lost those one or two parking spots per block. So I feel like that's the biggest thing that people need to start to wrap their heads around and just be getting on board with pretty quickly.
0: I have to imagine that just given the focus and the initiative, the discussion really going forward on the energy transition, that getting that easier approval process in New York, the support that you're probably getting from the government in terms of trying to drive that forward probably has to be a lot stronger than it was, you know, call it five years ago for these types of initiatives.
4: Absolutely. I think um, when the IRA passed this summer, it was a game changer. You know, a lot of people were looking at that as an outside indicator to understand where the U.S. position would stand. And then obviously, directly from the IRA, we have NEVI, which is bringing down huge amounts of funding that are going. And everyone, every state has their individual state plans, which that funding will then trickle down to. So it's our work to make sure that either from the initial tranche of funding, or from the secondary discretionary $2.5 billion, I believe, tranche of funding, that that's being dedicated to solutions, not just for rural areas, but for urban areas, because they have their different challenges, and they, and they can't be ignored.
0: The IRA, you're right. It was, it was an indicator of support, and I think continued support, and it really kick-started a lot of initiatives, because just the past few months, I've heard a lot of people referring back to it as a driving force behind what they're trying to do, but as well as the support that they're getting.
4: Absolutely it was It was huge that that was passed, and it's something that no one should be uh, forgetful of as as we move forward into into clean energy and and what will be the key milestones that got us there.
0: So we are just about finished with day one. What are you really interested in?
4: There are several panels that are coming up uh, towards the end of the day and most of the morning tomorrow that are focused again around the challenges for deployment of EV infrastructure. Uh, the limitations in terms of grid, obviously the apropos name of this conference is Grid Edge and trying to understand like how far we push up against that, that's that's safe and and how we work around that. So it's really exciting as I'm walking around the halls to hear, you know, my ears ring when I hear key phrases such as behind the meter solutions, vehicle grid, um, all these different ways that we're trying to think about how energy for... For it's electric. You know, we think about it in many ways, like the new currency. It's going to be what moves us, what powers us. And it's also something that we can move back and forth between different typologies, different structures, from vehicles to buildings as we need. So it's a new way to think about energy. And obviously with the opportunities, again, around V2G, around solar, around battery, around storage, it's a whole new world that we're entering. And it, it's really exciting to be a part of that.
0: Well, listen, I appreciate you stopping by. Good luck with It's Electric, and I'll be interested to see how you guys progress.
4: Thank you so much. We are It's Electric.
0: I'm joined by Carter Lee, CEO at Switch Energy. Carter, welcome. Thanks for having me. So, how are you finding the summit so far?
5: Uh, It's been a lot of fun. I mean, you know, this is still relatively uh, back to normal for for me. This is like the third Earth fourth conference that I've been to since the pandemic. So it's still kind of fun and new and being able to shake everybody's hands again. It's, it's really nice and refreshing.
0: Yeah, it has been nice the past year to be able to finally get in person. So you were on a panel just now discussing uh, EV charging ownership. How did that go? What were some of, kind of the key takeaways?
5: Yeah, I mean, we had a really diverse group of uh, panelists. I mean, we had Crystal, who was from uh, Next Era, Florida Power and Light. We had uh, Tia Gordon from it's electric, relatively uh, new um, technology company, and us, ourselves as well, Switch, which is uh, an electric vehicle charging company. So, uh, a really diverse group of people from different, I think, like geographic. Backgrounds like we're largely in in Canada and in the Northeast. Tia's in New York, and Crystal's obviously with Florida. So to hear about the different perspectives, but also the different challenges, and also the commonalities between like what we've seen in terms of the challenges of EV charging is really really interesting.
0: So tell me a little bit about Switch Energy. What's what's your business model? How do you go about it?
5: We're focused on uh, solving the challenges of multifamily electric vehicle charging for people living in a, an apartment building or a condominium who don't have access to their own garage or driveway. It's uh, It's particularly difficult to own an electric vehicle because you don't have a reliable source of charging. And, you know, we always like to use the analogy of the cell phone where that's typically how people charge their cars as well, instead of a gas station. 80% of charging occurs at home or at work. And the reason why is it's because it's the most convenient. And for people who don't have access to charging in those locations, it's really hard to kind of promote the adoption of electric vehicles in those settings. So we're focused on addressing the core challenges of deploying charging in those environments, which is primarily lack of electrical infrastructure in those buildings. And how does your revenue model work? We have a few different revenue models, all to kind of make it more flexible for the site operators, like the building owners or the uh, property management companies to provide this amenity to the residents. If the property management company sees this as a revenue generating tool, what we do is we sell the hardware to them, we provide the installation, and then we let them use that as a revenue generating tool and we take a cut of the transactions. If they see it as you know something that they don't want to necessarily participate in, we actually offer a, a charging as a, a service model where we actually own and operate those assets within those buildings so that they don't have to pay for it. They don't have to buy it. They're able to provide this amenity to their residents and tenants as amenity, making it easier for their residents to charge vehicles every day. And how's
0: the reception been from the uh, multifamily housing owners?
5: So we started this in 2016 and we commercialized in 2019. Obviously, the first couple of years are particularly difficult and, and challenging just because it's relatively early on in the adoption curve. But uh, in the last couple of years, you know, we've, we've gone from a little over a thousand charging ports last year to over 4,000 this year. So we've really been seeing a lot of uh, growth in the last couple of months. And, and this IRA bill has definitely supercharged it as well.
0: And how does that work in terms of the spots available for the, the charging? I mean, are people just going in there charging and then leaving? or Are there any problems like an overnight where the, all of a sudden, you know, you've got some people parked in the spot and mm. you really need to charge and get going?
5: Yeah, great question. And, and we actually get that a lot. I mean, that's very fair question too. Yeah, I think the, the worst case scenario that people always talk about when they're like trying to sh- like use a shared charger is like, I don't want to have to wake up at three o'clock in the morning to move my car because somebody else has to do that. And I totally agree. The ideal scenario from our perspective is that everybody gets access to a charging port. The reason why we are proposing that versus a couple of share chargers is the hardware itself is not actually a big part of the cost of the installation. It's all the conduits and electrical infrastructure. So if they're kind of managed in terms of like, you know, if it's sharing a 40 amp circuit, like four chargers uh, and, you know, separately, even though they're like slower, if you plug in at the same time, because of the kind of dwell period, how long these cars are plugged in for, as long as everybody gets a full charge at the end of their kind of dwell, uh, dwell period, that's the most ideal scenario. So they don't have to share a charger in that regard. But in situations where there is share charging, where like it's a rental apartment and nobody really owns a stall or there's no dedicated stalls, we implement a reservation and loitering system. Because like a, a lo- reservation system is relatively easy to do. It's just a calendar. But if you show up and you booked it at that time and somebody's still parked there, it's kind of useless. So our loitering system actually penalizes the person who's plugged in previously after they're fully charged from a kind of financial penalty perspective where it's like 5 or 10x more than what they usually pay per hour. That usually helps people respect the rules a little bit. And, and when they show up, these, these reservation types are actually respected. And you guys provide the design and construction of everything as well, right? Exactly. Yeah. So we're end to end. We don't manufacture the hardware. Think of us as like a Verizon or AT&T where you walk into a store and there's a bunch of phones. Same thing. It's like we offer a variety of different charging hardware. They all work within our network and our software. It gives you that flexibility of choice of what kind of charger you want and how it looks and, and that sort of thing. But we do the engineering for you. We scope out like what is the appropriate charging type and speed, et cetera, et cetera. And then we take care of the ongoing management as well.
0: And how long's that process once you kind of get the go-ahead from the owner to start from the approvals, the design, construction, everything? What's
5: what's kind of the timeline? It depends, but, um, you know, it can go as fast as two weeks. It can go as slow as, you know, as you can imagine. I think the the biggest advantage of us doing it in existing locations versus, you know, what we've seen in like kind of these like more public fast charging locations is we're not asking for additional power. We're not needing for the utility to approve of an additional service to us. We're using the existing pre-approved like energy within a building. So there's not a lot of this like, you know, offer to connect or interconnection requests that we often see for public charging um, deployments. How did you guys get started from a financing standpoint? Like most most groups, like we started off bootstrapping, you know, friends and family and that sort of thing, eating a lot of ramen noodles. But uh, it's been six years. We've seen, you know, a relatively great success recently because of, you know, the adoption really kicking off. It was just like the first couple of years were obviously challenging and bootstrapping it and getting, finding product market fit. But we, we eventually did uh, get our first investment in end of 2018, and we've had three or four subsequent rounds of financing.
0: The past uh, few years, there's been just a a ton of financing available. A lot of people are willing to invest in this type of technology and anything that furthers the energy transition discussion and initiative. It's been nice to see. I mean, just a lot of the guests that we've had on the podcast have noticed, you know, the past three years, it's really opened up where they were going banging on people's doors. Now, actually, they see they're being approached by a lot of financiers in regards to their technology.
5: Yeah, we're really fortunate in that regard. I mean, climate tech has definitely become a lot more attractive to venture capital. I think, you know, just thinking about when I was trying to talk to people in 2016, 2017 uh, versus, you know, what it is like now. So, yeah, we're, we're in a very fortunate space. Hopefully we can take advantage of that. I've seen a ton of companies do incredible things in the last couple of years. So hopefully we can turn that into something really tangible, Uh, I mean, there's already plenty of tangible things, but to to keep that VC cycle alive, you know, because there was a cycle in early 2010s when solar was propagating and there was a lot of investment initially in climate tech, but a lot of them don't, didn't pan out. And we had to pay for it subsequently. I don't think that's going to be the case this time around. But, uh, you know, we, all, we always have to be capital efficient and respectful of people's uh, investments.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's a lot more driving force now than there was a few years ago for climate tech. As you look at your expansion plans, um, kind of around Canada, and for your business, what are some of the biggest challenges that you're seeing?
5: I think it's still for a lot of folks, they're just kicking the can down the road a little bit. You know, they're they're seeing like what's next and, you know, uh, maybe I can just wait a few more years. But a lot of the policies have really pushed that forward because now for a lot of real estate developers in many metropolitan cities in, across North America, there's some sort of EV readiness requirement as part of building code. So like if you're going to get your building approved uh, to be constructed you have to pr- show that you will provide a minimum amount of EV charging so that's been a huge catalyst for our, for our growth that it's not it's not whether I should put in charging it's like how I should do it in the most cost-effective way.
0: Coder, I appreciate you stopping by uh, saying hello I wish uh, you and Switch the best of luck.
5: Yeah thanks so much for having me it was a lot of fun.
0: probably noticed throughout all my conversations the past few days that there were two major themes that kept popping up. Partnerships and education. Clearly, consumer education is an important part of the energy transition, making sure that everybody is able to make informed decisions going forward. Also, from a financing standpoint, partnerships with big names and big capital balance sheets are critical in helping develop new technologies that become scalable and make an impact on the energy transition. Overall, I had a great time at the Grid Edge Innovation Summit in Phoenix, Arizona. The panels were interesting, conversations were lively, and the weather was beautiful. But before I wrap up, I want to take you back to my favorite moment of the whole conference, the first day, when I spoke to Amy Bailey of National Grid Partners, and she had this to say.
6: So I think one fantastic thing about being a part of a company that's multinational is that you can take uh, learnings, you know, from one country, one environment, uh, and really apply them to the others. And so there are a variety of different uh, innovations um, uh, in various companies that we've worked with, for instance, through our, our work in the UK, through our businesses uh, in the UK that have proven to be you know, successful, that we then adopt, you know, that technology uh, over here in the US.
0: From the overall summit, what are some of the most interesting tidbits and things that you've taken away from day one?
6: Yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot of information, you know, a lot of insight uh, from the various industry players that we've heard today. So it's hard to uh, it's hard to synthesize or select just one or two points. Um, but I think you know one interesting area of conversation uh, on the grid modernization panel. Um, you know, was brought up about how we might want to consider for the utility sector actually a kind of decoupling 2.0. Um, so the decoupling 1.0 that took place was, you know, really decoupling sales um, from uh, from how the business is regulated and how how the utility business model is structured. Um, now we're talking more about, or at least at this conference, you're hearing a lot of comments about you know, not getting a return on physical assets, um, but actually getting a return on services. Um, and so decoupling effectively uh, in another way, kind of from the physical asset base. And so that's, uh, that th- I think there have been, uh, you know, a lot of interesting comments on that from uh, a variety of different attendees today, which was uh, something that wasn't necessarily quite on my quite on my radar. And I think uh, Susanna Mora from, from Exelon had used that terminology of decoupling 2.0, which I thought was a really... Um, kind of interesting way to describe this.
0: Yeah, there were some fascinating discussions around that point in regards to making it easier for the consumer, right? Mm-hmm. Because that, they were saying a lot of people don't look at their bills. Uh, just a number of ways to further the energy transition was make it easy and being that service provider, not necessarily getting the return on assets and investments that way, um, is, is really a, a pretty fascinating concept to help move the uh, move this initiative forward. Absolutely. Well Melissa, I appreciate you stopping by and saying hi.
6: Thanks very much for having me.